You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. All right, grab a pencil. You got it? Now I want you to write this down. X squared minus 6X plus 9 equals 0. Got that? So what's X? Okay, so does trying to solve that equation feel like having coffee with an old friend? Hey, Joe. Glad we could meet up for a cup of Joe. <laughs> or does trying to solve that equation feel like being airdropped into a foreign country, ah! dense with strange insects, Ow! where you don't understand a word people are saying? A gibberly jobu at yak eh? Exactly. Wait, did you say gibberly or gibberly? Everyone has a different comfort level with mathematics. The subject is the personal bugaboo for a lot of students. You'll often hear them say, I like school, but I really hate math. It's so hard. And besides, I'll never use algebra or calculus in the real world. And even if that student did want to use it, he or she wouldn't be able to. At least that's what the numbers say. Recently, the U.S. Department of Education's National Center for Education Statistics ran an international survey of adult skills in mathematics. And among the advanced economies surveyed, Americans ranked 21st. 21st out of 100? That's 79%. That's a solid C+. That's, that's almost a B. Minus. Out of 23 countries, Americans ranked 21st out of 23. Well, that's the bottom 8%. That's just 72 percentage points away from a B. Minus. We just beat out Spain and Italy. Top of the mathematical heap, Japan, then Finland. For some teachers, such poor scores make the case that students need to study harder. But there are some scholars who suggest doing the opposite. Do away with required math classes altogether. They should be subtracted from the learning equation. And as you can imagine, this idea has created division among the experts. But does doing away with mandatory math add up? I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. And this is Big Picture Science. On this program, we step back to give a big picture of where science and technology are headed. And the debate over whether traditional mathematics should be required in schools allows us to raise the ante. Let's eliminate math education altogether. What would the world look like if math's days are numbered? Many subjects fall under the umbrella of mathematics, geometry, algebra, calculus, trigonometry, and a whole bunch of esoteric specialties. And collectively, they're holding our students back, according to Andrew Hacker of Queens College at the City University of New York. In an opinion piece in the New York Times in 2012, Professor Hacker argued that the whole mathematics curriculum is frustrating kids so much they're dropping out of school. Professor Hacker teaches political science and mathematics and says he's seen many promising students end their studies early 
in high school and in college simply because they couldn't handle the math requirements. The problem is that students have all kinds of talents and abilities, poetry, philosophy, history, you name it. But we've set up mathematics, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, as a 10-foot high wall that everybody has to climb over, hey, if they want to get into college. Well, what happens to all the poets and philosophers? Well, what math requirements are you talking about? Can you give me some specific subjects here? Absolutely. I am talking about mathematics, not arithmetic. I am all in favor of studying statistics and you know, honing your talents on multiplication and fractions and percentages. Mathematics is algebra, quadratic equations, it's geometry with its esoteric proofs, it's trigonometry with sines and cosines. Hey, Seth, when did you last use a sine and a cosine? Well, actually, I, I do use them, to be honest, in my line of work. Well, okay, but let's go back to the other 99% of the population. When did they ever use trigonometric functions. Admittedly, it doesn't seem that they use them very frequently. But how many students are you talking about here, Professor Hacker? How many are actually dropping out of college and high school because they have problems with trig or algebra? In fact, close to one in four, almost one in four of American students do not finish high school. They do not get a diploma. And the biggest single academic reason why they don't get a diploma, is algebra and the math curriculum. That's where the failures are. And I'm saying that those students have all sorts of talents that we'll never discover. Well, I mean, is this percentage, that, that's pretty stunning, a quarter of the students, but is that any worse than students that have trouble in English? Because, you know, English is also a required course. It so happens that it is the stumbling block. English is not. The failure rate, whether it's state exit tests, or any of those you want to use. The failure rate in mathematics is much higher than any other subject. And that's also true at college. You know that almost half of the people who start college don't finish. The biggest single academic reason, again, is required math courses that they fail. So what's your solution? Your solution is drop these subjects from the required course lists? My solution is make mathematics, geometry, algebra, trig, optional electives. And you know what? If the teachers, you know, have to teach them as electives, they're going to make them interesting, compelling, attractive, and students will sign up. At this point, imagine being a math teacher where two-thirds of your students are there are conscripts, they're against their will. If they're electives, you have it voluntary, and word will get around that Ms. Jones is teaching a great class, Professor Chen is teaching a great class, let's sign up. Isn't this simply giving in to failure? I mean, maybe what we should be doing is doing better at teaching these subjects. I mean, if you give up on piano lessons because they're hard in the beginning, you will never learn to play the piano. I am a college professor, and I'm all in favor of rigor. You can ask any of my students. I'm teaching classes right now at Queens College, and I'll tell you I've set a very high bar. The reason I'm saying this about mathematics is there's no point in teaching mathematics. It, it's about nothing. Now, there is the argument, if you want to make it, that mathematics teaches thinking, you know, rigorous thinking. This is just not so. What it teaches is rigorous thinking about mathematics. It doesn't transfer to anything else. But you wouldn't deny that our high-tech present, our high-tech future is dependent on math. So, 
if we do this, if we reduce the requirements for math, aren't we kind of yielding the field to other countries that uh, still insist on teaching this stuff? The Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce has computed that fewer than 5% of all occupations now or into the discernible future will need mathematics of the algebra trigonometry kind. Oh, yes, we need quantitative skills, and they're very important. And that's what I teach in the math department as a professor of math. I teach a class in quantitative skills, which is the use of serious arithmetic. Arithmetic about the kind of numbers we deal with in our lives. But quadratic equations and polynomials, that's for a couple of engineers. And even engineers don't use that much math anymore. What what about the argument that uh, you make math uh, an elective? You make uh, at least higher math in, in high school and beyond. You make it an elective, and that means that a lot of kids that, you know, think, ah, oh, math is it's hard, I'm not really interested, they don't take it. But there's a certain percentage of those who, if they did take it, might find, you know, this is actually kind of neat. I've certainly had that experience with, a, you know, courses in European history. I thought, oh, well, I'm not going to need that. I take the course, and suddenly I realize, hey, that's really interesting stuff. Okay, that's a great argument. Make everybody take it, and maybe a a few will be turned on with it. I'll give you a figure. This year, 1.6 million students took the SAT, Scholastic Aptitude Test. All of those 1.6 million had to take several years of high school math. Guess how many of those 1.6 million were so turned on by math that they say, hey, I'd like to major it in college. Guess what percentage of that 1.6 million? Well, majoring in math, I admit, is a rather small yeah, percentage. Yeah, but let's just use that as a test. You want a quantitative answer here? Yeah. I don't know, maybe 2%? No, 0.6%. <laughs> in other words, how many are turned on by high school math? I think more would be if we made an elective and the teachers had to make it interesting. Where did this math arc you know, beginning with geometry and trigonometry and then moving on to algebra and eventually calculus. Where did that come from? Is that just history? Is there, is there some solid reasoning behind making this mandatory? That's a great question, uh, Seth. And the answer is that mathematics, Latin and Greek, were kind of the uh, stable curriculum, oh, all the way back since the end of the Middle Ages. Latin, Greek, and mathematics uh, kind of came from the Greeks, I guess. And the notion was it trained the mind and uh, introduced you to something civilized. And by the way, mathematics is civilized. It's a great cultural achievement. And I'm all in favor of having my tax money pay for research on, you know, clarifying Ryman's hypothesis. But don't make everybody suffer through it. So if uh, things went your way, Professor Hacker, and uh, I was a high school student uh, entering school 10 years from now, what would I see in terms of mathematics, uh, you know, required mathematics? Right. Well, uh, I'm working on something now as a constructive answer to this. this. This is the class I'm teaching the math department. My class has no algebra, trigonometry, or geometry, but it's about statistics, numbers, becoming agile with numbers, how to use them, how to see them, how to see other people abusing them, how to make them tell a story, where to find them. You know, it's a kind of common sense, cultural, citizen, public statistics. I'd like to have a lot of courses like that, and I think students would flock to them because, hey, we all know numbers from age five. Let's put them to use. Well, 
finally, Professor Hacker, has any other developed country actually done this, or are you a lone voice in the wilderness? Is your idea getting any traction? Well, I'm a lone voice. I don't feel I'm in the wilderness. The piece I wrote for the New York Times got about 3,000 emails coming my way, and I would say, oh, some of them wanted to send me to the outer circles of hell, uh, but in fact, a lot, <laughs> the majority did. But there was a very sizable plurality which said, hey, go for it. We're on your side. Andrew Hacker, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, Seth, this has been a lot of fun. Andrew Hacker is a professor of political science and mathematics at Queens College at the City University of New York. His article, Is Algebra Necessary?, appeared in the New York Times on July 28, 2012. But you can find an easy link to it on our website. Okay. So mathematics is on shaky ground, at least with regard to our national scores and mandatory requirements in the classroom. But what if it's more than that? Perhaps this is just the beginning of an erosion of this subject, and mathematics is headed the way of Latin. Remember Latin? Maximus, cum visa demanducandu? The mother asks in Latin when her son Maximus wants to eat. Pero mamá, no tengo hambre. The son replies in Spanish that he's not hungry now, so maybe later. Latine, loqui latine. The mother implores, speak Latin, Latin. Pero mamá, latín es tan anticuado. Todos los niños hablan español. But mom, all the kids speak Spanish now. Latin is so old school. Maybe mathematics is similarly old school. Test scores show that our skills are eroding. Kids are struggling with the subject, says Professor Hacker. So why stop at getting rid of required math classes? Let's do away with mathematics altogether. Why not? I mean, it's so hard anyway. Coming up, what that world might look like. Okay, toss your protractor, your calculator, and your math book. You might as well ditch a deep understanding of nature, though, and your sense of humor while you're at it. Why mathematics drives the universe and is intrinsic to one of television's most popular comedies. <laughs> oh, and remember that equation, x squared minus 6x plus 9 equals 0? What is x? Well, the answer is... 3. Good, Gary. Math days are numbered on Big Picture Science. All right, well, let's run with this idea of getting rid of math classes altogether. I mean, life is simpler already, right? No more pesky, algebraic, geometric, trigonometric, or couchy integral thoughts interfering with our zen-like calm. Gone is our fear of flunking a math test. Gone are those panic attacks you get when faced with logarithms. Gone is our deep understanding of nature. I'm Bob Berman, astronomy editor of the Old Farmer's Almanac and a columnist for Astronomy Magazine. How Math Drives the Universe is Bob Berman's cover story in the December 2013 issue of the magazine. To sum up, math is the skeleton of the universe, and it underlies every aspect of the cosmos. That's all. Bob, you say that math drives the universe. 
in which sense is mathematics, which is, after all, just a kind of formalized calculation, just a bit of abstract brain activity, really in the driver's seat for the universe? Well, it's a big and ancient question as to whether math is our way of making sense of the universe, in other words, a human construction, or if the universe really operates by math and that we discover the universe through math. Which is it? Our own imposition on the cosmos, or is it uncovering a basic thing about the cosmos itself? Yeah, do you have a preferred way of looking at it yourself? Well, not really. I could see it either way, but considering that professional astronomers use math all the time, and the things that are uncovered by math are revelatory and important and interesting and cool, I'd say maybe the math comes first and our understanding follows that. Now, the magazine you write for, Bob, Astronomy Magazine, it's read by tens of thousands of amateur astronomers, people who, you know, they just like to take their telescopes to a dark location and enjoy views of the planets, nebulae, star clusters, even galaxies. But they don't have to mess with mathematics to do this, and, and they generally don't, right? Right. They don't mess with it, and they don't have to, because you can fully appreciate the beauty of the universe, the beauty of anything, without intellectualizing it or without even any knowledge. There are objects like the rings of Saturn that make people say, that's not real, or oh my God, at the eyepiece. And they don't have to know that each particle is a chunk of ice and that each one is a little miniature moon that orbits Saturn. You don't have to know a thing to appreciate the beauty of the universe. That's quite true. So maybe you would say it's sort of like music. I mean, you can appreciate music without having to be schooled in, in music theory. It's absolutely true. So it sounds like what you're saying is that mathematics could enrich the experience if we only knew a little bit more about it. You've talked to professional astronomers about their work, and, uh, what, well, what do they say about math and, and their jobs? That math for professional astronomers is what they do all the time, not 35%, not 99%, but absolutely all the time. And that's unfortunately why people who start out in astronomy perhaps go to college thinking that they're going to be looking through telescopes and studying the rings of Saturn are sometimes appalled or sometimes delighted to learn that it's all mathematical and that a lot of things follow from it. Here's an idea. Here's a simple example. The moon rotates on its axis in exactly 27.32166 days. Well, it also goes around Earth in 27.32166 days. I memorized all these because I love numbers and I've loved them since I was a kid. Those are the same numbers. So it means that as the moon turns, it also orbits Earth in the same period and therefore only shows one face to Earth. Well, some people say, isn't that the most amazing coincidence? It's, it's astonishing. This has implications for, for maybe spiritual or, or metaphysical implications there. But no, it turns out that all of the nearly 200 moons in the solar system do exactly the same thing. They have a captured rotation. But why? And that leads us to gravity and tidal forces and tidal locking, and a lot of deep, important implications that you wouldn't get there unless you started with the simple math of the periods of revolution and rotation of the moon. And there are other ratios like that as well. 
in, in the solar system, and they're fascinating. The, the moons of Jupiter go around Jupiter like a marching band, with Ganymede having one orbit in the exact same time that it takes Europa to go around Jupiter twice, and, and Io to go around four times, and they're in perfect sync with each other. And even if you don't take it any further than that, it's pretty cool. Bob, you know, mathematics is a funny kind of activity. I mean, we, we can't even decide if it's something invented by the human brain or whether it has some sort of independent existence. Even if Homo sapiens weren't here, would math still be here? Interesting. That's very interesting. In other words, if we had just a planet full of cats observing the universe, uh, w would math still rule? And I think most physicists would say, yes, it would, even without us uh, apprehending it. Although you start to get a little tricky because ever since the quantum guys gained ascendancy in the 1930s, it's become more and more apparent that the observer and nature itself are correlative. They go together. In other words, we bring the universe into existence with our observations, that things would be different if we weren't looking at them. The famous double-slit experiment, which also involves math, shows us that what we see determines what's there. And uh, so that would be true even if only cats or dolphins lived on the planet. Even if they didn't understand why, it would still be the case. We also assume that if there are aliens out there, technologically sophisticated aliens, that they too would have math, and, and really, essentially, the same math that we have. Oh, that's so true, Seth. And uh, that's why one of the basic ideas of communicating with aliens, uh, and we did so certainly on both the, the Voyager video disc and on the Pioneer plaque that we sent out, were symbols involving math. In other words, depictions of the most common atom in the universe, the hydrogen atom, and little symbols for a nearby pulsar showing how quickly the pulsar turns uh, and giving directions for the aliens to find Earth. You might recall how some rather paranoid people in Congress uh, at the time were appalled at that. I mean, why should we broadcast our location before we know whether these aliens are benevolent or not? They could just use these plaques and come and destroy us. But nonetheless, we used math to do this, uh, assuming that it's the uh, lingua franca of the entire universe, that if we're going to communicate with anyone, it's going to be with math, because a circle is a circle, and the ratio between a radius or a diameter of a circle and uh, its circumference is going to be pi, no matter where you live in the universe. In your article for Astronomy Magazine, you describe a little bit one of the equations of special relativity. And, you know, it cannot be denied that our best understanding of how the universe works on a large scale is given by Einstein's theories of relativity. But I don't think that Einstein ever looked through a telescope. <laughs> quite right, quite right. And the glories of this are, is that it's so simple. Einstein, his best equations were stone simple. The famous E equals mc squared, that the energy of an object expressed in ergs is simply equal to its mass, its weight, expressed in grams times the speed of light multiplied by itself, speed of light expressed in centimeters per second. What could be simpler than those three terms? There's, there's no fancy extra symbols in it showing how energy and matter are equivalent. And it was the simplicity 
that made it so beautiful. Or the Lorentz transformation that shows how time slows down as you go faster and faster. It doesn't require a whole blackboard worth of equations. It's a simple equation with just a few figures on it. And it shows that as you speed up, time slows down. The universe gets smaller and smaller until if you could travel at the speed of light, you'd find yourself everywhere in the universe at once with no separation between your place and the farthest edges of the universe. And it turns out that's not just some twist or warpage in your perception. The universe actually would have no length at all if you could travel at that speed. And there would be no time passage at all for you, as witnessed by someone who wasn't traveling that quickly, if you could travel at that speed. So the implications are enormous. They're deep, and they tell us fundamentals about the universe that you simply could not even begin to approach without at least this simple bit of math. Sounds like the ultimate travel experience to be everywhere at once. Bob Berman, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Seth. Bob Berman is the astronomy editor of the Old Farmer's Almanac and columnist for Astronomy Magazine. His article, How Math Drives the Universe, is a cover story in the December 2013 issue. He's also the author of the book, The Sun's Heartbeat. I mean, there's no doubt that astronomy today is mostly mathematics, but that's kind of a development of the last, say, 400 years, because before that, astronomy was just looking at the sky and eventually with telescopes looking at the sky. But once we had some physics where we could understand what we were looking at, it it just sort of changed the whole nature of the uh, occupation, if you will. So sometime after the laws of Kepler were established. Yes, Kepler, but uh, maybe more important, Newton, Isaac Newton, you know, he... He gave the fundament of most of what we were seeing in the sky. So astronomy that was once observational became something that was quantitative. Indeed. Indeed. It's so important today. All right. Here's a theorem, and we're going to try to prove it. We would laugh less often without mathematics. So these two integers walk into a restaurant. The first integer says, I'll have a piece of pie. The second integer says, that's not rational. And the first integer replies, we'll divide it in two. Wait, here's another. How many polyhedrals does it take to fill a rectilinear Yes, without math, we would miss that joke. And I did miss that joke. But we would also miss the humor that's found here. Well, math humor may not be the first association you make with The Simpsons. The satirical animated comedy seems more at home characterizing the dim-witted exploits of its anti-hero, Homer, and his dysfunctional family than eliciting laughs from an obscure Fermat's last theorem joke, but it does just that. When science journalist Simon Singh met the show's writers, he discovered with surprise that they were serious science geeks, kind of like him. And they aimed to insert jokes about complex math problems into the award-winning show. So there's an episode called Money Bart, where Lisa is surrounded by lots of books. And if you look carefully on one of the books, along its spine is a title. And the title is E to the I pi plus one equals zero. Now, that sounds like gobbledygook. But if you're a mathematician, it's the single most beautiful equation in the history of mathematics. Now, you have to be pretty quick to spot that one and others like it. But you'll be rewarded. Simon Singh calls The Simpsons... Without doubt, the most mathematically sophisticated television show in the history of prime time. Yeah, maybe in the history of prime numbers. Then again, they have a pretty long history. Okay, Simon, so what's up? 
Are the math jokes in The Simpsons really part of a secret plot to educate the audience? Well, uh, if it is secret, it's so secret and so subtle that I'm not sure it's really working. A lot of the mathematics, and, the, and there is a lot of mathematics in The Simpsons, um, a lot of it is there just for a fraction of a second, or it's hidden away in a corner or hidden away on a blackboard. And so 99.9% .9 of people just won't even notice it. So if it is educating them, then it's doing it in a very subconscious way or very subliminally. Well, that sounds like it isn't really about education. It's merely about amusement, amusement for uh, presumably the people making the show and for the very small fraction of the audience that can get the jokes. Yeah, I, I think and I think you're right. That, that a lot of the writers on The Simpsons were mathematicians and uh, some have degrees in math, some have master's degrees, some even have PhDs. In one case, there was a Yale professor who joined the writing team of The Simpsons, uh, Jeff Westbrook. Uh, now, they're no longer mathematicians. They're comedy writers, but they still love mathematics. And, and I think one of the reasons they put the mathematics into the show is for their own entertainment, for their own amusement. They get a kick out of it. But I think they're also reaching out to fellow mathematicians. And, and you know, if, if you're watching the show and you spot a reference to Pythagoras or a, a reference to calculus, then you just think to yourself, well, I love mathematics and there's somebody who writes The Simpsons and they love mathematics too. So it's kind of reaching out to those fellow nerds and geeks. <laughs> well, it's pretty sophisticated, some of it. I mean, you write about the infamous Treehouse of Horror 6 episode and uh, you claim it presents the most intense five minutes of mathematics ever broadcast to a mass audience. Maybe you could elaborate a bit on that. Oh, yes. In it, there is a, a, a reference to Fermat's last theorem. And, um, and the episode has the equation flying through the back of the frame, uh, back of shot. Um, there's a segment in that Treehouse of Horror 6 episode where Homer is dragged into a higher dimensional world. And it's drawn in, in quite sophisticated, what well, it was back then, it was very sophisticated computer graphics. And the landscape is populated with different things, such as Fermat's last theorem. Um, as well as a reference to a, an unsolved problem in mathematics known as P versus NP. Um, there's a rearrangement of Euler's identity crops up in, in, in one part of the, the story. Um, there's ASCII references. This, you know, ASCII is this way of translating between letters and, and numbers. Um, the whole storyline is really an adventure in higher dimensional mathematics. Some of these jokes are pretty obscure, however. I mean, you've mentioned Fermat's last theorem, one of the most difficult mathematical puzzles in all of history, uh, I, I think it's uh, looking for integer solutions to an equation x to the n plus y to the n equals z to the n, if I remember correctly. And But how do you make a joke out of that? Yeah, well, they're, they're not really jokes. I mean, some of the mathematics is, is sort of framed within the story, and it, it can be slightly humorous. There's, there are references to pi, for example, where... Uh, Homer Simpson, for example, in uh, in the episode, gosh, uh, Simple Pieman, I think. Homer starts doling out justice by throwing pies at people. He becomes a superhero, the pie man. And somebody witnesses what, what Homer's up to and they're being interviewed. They say, well, I always knew that pi r squared, but today pi r justice. Um, now, it's not the greatest joke in the world, but it's a very old mathematical joke. Or it's based on a very old mathematical joke. And, and you can put that into the storyline because we all know what pi is, so we can all share in, in that pun. Um, but the more obscure the mathematics gets, the more it's just in the background. So, for example, there's a, an episode called Marge and Homer Turn a Couple Play. 
and there's a scoreboard or a jumbo vision screen at the Springfield Stadium where they're playing a baseball match. And there are some numbers on this jumbo vision screen. And again, they look like just ordinary numbers, uh, maybe picked at random. But in fact, one of them is a prime number, not just a prime number, in fact, but a Mersenne prime number. Another of the numbers is a perfect number. That means that the divisors of the number add up to the number itself. These numbers are incredibly rare. Very, very few numbers are perfect. Um, and then the third number is a narcissistic number, which I'd never even heard of before I started researching The Simpsons and, and the link to mathematics. A narcissistic number means you count the number of digits and then you raise each digit to the power of the number of digits, add it all up, and you get back to the first number. Um, so the number regenerates itself from its own digits. But essentially, it's a number that's in love with itself, and therefore it's called a narcissistic number. Uh, you talk about freeze-frame jokes in The Simpsons. Maybe you could explain what that is. Yeah, so one of the, the uh, rules was that you cannot let the mathematics get in the way of other jokes. So the way that the more obscure references are put in, they're there just for a second. They're there just for a frame, literally sometimes, sometimes a few frames. And this is known as a freeze-frame gag. And um, it was kind of pioneered by The Simpsons because... At that time, when The Simpsons were starting, we were just beginning to get video tape recorders. So the only way you can spot a freeze frame gag or a freeze frame reference is if you can pause the show or watch it again and again. But a lot of the mathematical references are embedded in these kind of freeze frame references. Do you find this all a bit encouraging? I mean, I used to watch The Three Stooges in reruns, and, and I loved them. I thought they were great, really funny. Uh, but they didn't have too many math jokes. And the fact that... Uh, very popular show can be so riddled with what's really a fairly sophisticated content uh, encourages me to think that maybe not all is lost, despite what I read in the newspapers. It, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to know that the most popular sitcom at the moment in America is The Big Bang Theory, uh, which is a comedy all about physics and universities and nerds and geeks. And, you know, we, we laugh along with them and we enjoy the nerdy humor, some of the incredibly obscure references that relate to particle physics and quantum theory. So maybe there's an increasing appetite for this sort of thing. Simon Singh, thanks so much for talking with me today. My pleasure. Good to talk to you too. Simon Singh is a science journalist, and he is the author of The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. Okay, math informs astronomy. It's also fodder for humor. But maybe you're still on the fence about keeping math around. No problem. I mean, I get it. But how do you feel about storing personal data online? Or rather, how do you feel having unknown eyeballs looking at those data? Cybersecurity, it's all based on codes and equations Without mathematics, you may not understand it all, but the hackers will. We're imagining a world in which math's days are numbered on Big Picture Science. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. In a climate where our national math scores are barely abysmal and kids are dropping out of school because they just can't take the math, and there's a debate of whether math should be part of the required curriculum, we're wondering if it's the beginning of the end for math. So we're running with this idea, imagining a world where we 86 mathematics. Now, we can still explore the world. We might just have to limit our horizons somewhat. 
Hello? Yeah. Is this Rob Manning? This is Rob Manning. Are, are you the Rob Manning who landed the Curiosity rover and got that uh, moving around on Mars? Yes, I'm the one. Well, great. Congratulations on that. That was truly awesome. Thank but, you. <laughs> well, this is this is Seth Chostak from Big Picture Science, and, and we have an idea for a new rover. Can I run that by you? Absolutely, Seth. I, I, I'm curious what you have to say about it. Well, look, you know our national scores in mathematics competency are pretty low, so we're suggesting that you tweak your designs, build a new rover for a non-mathematically gifted generation. I mean, we built the Nina Pinta in Santa Maria without mathematicians, just a few shipwrights. So can we construct a space vehicle without using mathematics? Wow. Seth, you know, I've never thought about that. But you know what? I don't think you can. In fact, I know you can't. Almost everything we do every single day the core of what we do requires math to get anything done. Well, so well, I can't imagine how we could build a rover. I'm just, I just don't think we can do it. What, what about the rocket launch? I mean, you guys are pretty good at this by now. You've, you've made a few hole-in-ones launching spacecraft over the years. I'm sure you have it down by now. How, how close could you get if you just skip the equations? I, I really, Seth, I don't think we'd ever get even off the surface of Earth, let alone clear across the solar system to a point just a few hundred meters across going at, at, at 13,000 miles an hour, um, uh, it's, it's inconceivable to me that we could do it even today. It's, it doesn't, it's not about practice. It's about knowing the math. There's virtually nothing that we've built that doesn't require math, even the simplest piece of equipment. We need to verify that will work under the conditions of launch, entry, descent, and landing, and surface operations. So we have to do all this math to make sure that every little piece won't break or won't get stretched or won't uh, fall apart at the time we need it to work on Mars. So math is really absolutely the language of building spacecraft. Well, I thought this non-mathematical rover was at least worth a shot. Uh, Thanks for considering it, Rob. You're very welcome, Seth. Thank you for calling. Rob Manning is an engineer with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He was chief engineer for the Curiosity rover and also worked on the Spirit and Opportunity and Mars Pathfinder rovers, getting them all to the Red Planet and making sure they were mobile once they were there, all of which apparently required mathematics. Okay, well, cross-rocket scientist off the list of math-irrelevant pursuits. Okay, maybe you're not a fan of exploration, and maybe you don't have too much enthusiasm for plowing through the dust of our little ruddy buddy or any of the other solar system spheroids. I mean, who needs them? And who needs math? Okay, fine. So when is the last time you bought something online? Or sent an email to your mom? Every time we send an email message or access our bank account, our messages and credit card numbers are encrypted so that they could not be intercepted by a third party. So the security protocols are ubiquitous, and they are based on mathematics. Dr. Frankel is a mathematician at the University of California, Berkeley. And as he notes, cybersecurity is completely dependent on mathematics. And so he's concerned about actions taken by the National Security Agency to use encrypted systems, like the ones you use to buy things online, for its own ends, secretly. Its intention is to use code to create back doors in some of the common security protocols that are used with our bank accounts, online shopping, and so forth. The issues that it raises about privacy aside, Dr. Frankel is worried about what this action bodes for our safety and the freedom of mathematical creativity. 
Mathematics is universal, he says. And because you don't need special equipment to do math, just a pencil and some paper, there's no way to keep a mathematical discovery secret. Including an encrypted back door. If you build it, someone else can discover it. And that includes a hacker. The Perils of Hacking Math is Dr. Frankel's article for the online magazine Slate. But Edward Frankel has a lot more to say about his profession. Because mathematics is so accessible, it has parallels to other universal experiences, such as matters of the heart. His book, Love and Math, The Heart of Hidden Reality. And we'll get to math and love shortly. But first, how math can be abused. Let's even assume for the sake of the argument that we all allow NSA to do this, that we all decide, okay, so they're doing their job, they're trying to prevent a terrorist attack, so they need to have this means to uh, access communication. So we would like to let them do this. That's fine, but the problem is that once you weaken that protocol, that opens the door for other parties as well. So it's not just the big brother that's watching us. That would mean that other smaller brothers, so to speak, can also watch us, can also hack into our bank accounts and so on, because that backdoor is embedded into the security protocol. A very crude analogy, is it sort of like building a little pet door into your back door so that your dog can go in and out, let's say? That's right. But now you have this portal which cats can go in and out and chipmunks can go in and out, but you you suddenly uh, broken the integrity of your door and of your wall. That's right. And without telling anyone, so that people do expect the door to be bulletproof, so to speak, to protect you, protect your security, whereas in fact, there is a big gaping hole in it. And that's what the problem is. And in in this case, the gaping hole is access to all of this information, this personal information of ours, bank account numbers or social security numbers or whatever it is. That's right. And someone might say, well, but NSA, of course, they are responsible people. They are going to keep it secret. They're not going to tell anyone. Well, first of all, we cannot be sure. That's number one. But in this case, I also want to emphasize that even let's suppose that this information never leaves the NSA, there is nothing to prevent someone else from the outside from discovering this. And that's what I refer to as the mathematics being a great equalizer or the inherent democracy of mathematics, because anyone can discover a mathematical formula. So what would you like the government and the National Security Agency to do? If you could give them your wish, My wish is that I think that I would like to see more closer closer connection between the NSA and professional mathematicians. Another role is also to educate the public. And that's another reason why I wrote that article, because I think that most people don't realize how mathematics is used and don't realize the potential for the abuse of mathematics. Now, we've been talking about how mathematics can be abused and is, you know, can be used to cause all sorts of headaches in our lives. But what you also write about is the celebration of math in the way that math does govern our lives in quite beautiful ways, in ways that we may not realize if we're not mathematicians. And you've written a book called Love and Math. And I have a sense, and even in this article that you wrote about cybersecurity, that you're very protective of math, not just as a tool, but as an aesthetic experience. And that partly what you're trying to do is to protect the integrity of mathematics. Is is that right? And, and can you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think mathematics is a big part of our culture, uh, which should be celebrated just the way we celebrate art and literature, which is available to all of us. Now, when I say the word available, people might say, well, but uh, I was bad at math. And uh, I'm not be, I'm, I will not be able to understand. Well, mathematics is like a language. No one can prevent anyone from learning the language that is needed to understand mathematics. And but you, as I understand, when you were being schooled in, in Russia on math, you were actually quite talented. So you seem to have some natural ability. 
Well, I thank and you for saying that. But at the same time, I have to admit, and that this might come as a shock to some of the listeners, that I actually hated mathematics when I was at school. I thought what most people think of mathematics, that it was boring, lifeless, and irrelevant. And that's because I didn't know any better. I only knew what I was taught at school. And I didn't realize that real mathematics is so much bigger and so much more fascinating. I was lucky. There was someone in my life uh, when I was in high school, when I was about 15, or was a professional mathematician who showed me that hidden world of mathematics. I was really fascinated with the quantum world, with the world of quantum physics. And of course, I didn't know much about it, but I was reading popular books. I was growing up in, in the Soviet Union where, you know, such books were available, so I was reading that, and it was very, very interested in the stuff. But in those books, they would only go so far. They would only talk about, for example, some elementary particles, but they would not explain how those particles were discovered, what was, was beneath the surface, what was the theory behind this. I couldn't find the answer to, to my questions. And then what happened is that at my first meeting was that mathematician that I mentioned who, who wanted to, he, he said later that he wanted to convert me into math. And so the way he did it is he said, okay, so you are, you know, the hotshot who likes quantum physics, but do you know how this, you know, the theory behind all of this? And I said, no. So he pulled out a book from a shelf and he opened it. And in that book, I saw these formulas and diagrams. And it was clear, even though I couldn't make heads or tails of what was in the book, it was clear that it contained this coherent theory, which explained everything that I was curious about. And then this mathematician said to me, said, you think what you studied at school is math. No, this is real math. And that was that moment that suddenly I saw glimpses of that world, which I didn't even know existed. So when you were 15 years old and you looked at this book and your teacher said, you know, everything that you're learning in math class is one thing, but look at these formulas here. You didn't understand those formulas, but the fact that they existed, the fact that these predictive formulas existed that could explain the universe is what got you hooked. That's right. The way mathematics is usually taught is like uh, teaching an art class in which you only teach, you teach students only how to paint a fence or a wall, but you never show them the paintings of the great masters. So in both cases, paint is involved. If you paint a fence, you use a paint, and artists also use the paint. But imagine that no one ever told you that paint could be used in such a way to produce the paintings of Leonardo da Vinci or Picasso. So mathematics to you is beautiful. It is beautiful, but it's, it's actually, this is just one, as, one aspect of it. It is beautiful like art, but also, and that connecting to what we talked about earlier, it also has this amazing power in which it can affect our lives and it's playing a bigger, bigger role in our daily lives. So I was under the impression, as I had said, that you had been particularly gifted in math. And actually, that is a, maybe that's a myth that we have, that those who are good in math are just gifted, and they go on to have mathematical careers. And then maybe others, they don't have the special gift, and they fall away. But it sounds as though that's not the case. And in your case, the difference was an instructor who who opened up the door for you. That's right. What do you think happens to most students who, who become disinterested in math? Because I think that's more often the rule than the... Yes, and in fact, it's tra- I, I, I would even say, I'll go further and say it's actually tragic because unfortunately, a lot of people have a very negative experience with mathematics at school. I've heard so many stories of students being called in front of the classroom and a teacher telling them, you're stupid, you don't understand. And this stays with you and it gives you this bad taste. And after that... 
I think most people just shut down when I tr when you try to broach the subject of mathematics. They say, I wasn't good enough, I didn't understand. What they're really saying is that I wasn't good at painting the fence, but they were never shown the paintings of the great masters. So for them, mathematics was kind of an intellectual equivalent of watching paint dry. Behind you is a whiteboard with lots and lots of mathematical equations on it. I'm trying to see if I recognize anything. I recognize the number one and the parentheses. <laughs> Can you tell me, just in one sentence, can you summarize what all these numbers and equations are? I'm trying to understand how different pieces of the puzzles fit together. That's what mathematics is about. It okay. is like about solving a jigsaw puzzle. Okay. So what you see on the board are different pieces. So this isn't a formula for how the, the universe began. This isn't or, a formula for love. Yeah, or the formula for love. Yeah, it is well, not the it, formula of love. I it, would like to find it. It could one. be because it's complex enough for the formula for well, love. Well, in my book I say, you know, a few years ago, I made a film which is called Rights of Love and Math and, uh, with, with a French director, Ren Grave. And uh, the premise of the film is that mathematician finds a formula of love. When I show the film, people always ask me, does a formula of love exist? And, uh, and the answer I give is that every formula we discover is a formula of love. And that's because all these formulas tell us something about the world and about us. And uh, they point to this, to this new world to this beautiful universe, this beautiful hidden universe of mathematics. And when we learn and understand it, that gives us some more power and potential to love the world and to love each other. Edward Frankel, thank you very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. And in a language I could understand. <laughs> Edward Frankel is a professor of mathematics at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of Love and Math, The Heart of Hidden Reality. His article, The Perils of Hacking Math, can be found in the online magazine Slate. you also find a link to his article on our website, bigpicturescience.org. So it sounds as though we could not get online without math. I mean, we could get online. We couldn't do much once we were there. And we'd also miss out on the beauty of the world. No, that's actually undeniable. I mean, his point that math is, is actually beautiful is really a good one. People think of math as something that's hard, abstruse, you know. But it's, it's known as the queen of the sciences. And justifiably, because all of physics, all of astronomy, even chemistry and biology, I mean, the big insights in those fields have almost always been made by mathematicians. So here's a final thought. We started this program with Professor Andrew Hacker's opinion that mathematics should not be required in school. Running with that idea, we've been imagining a world that was altogether without math. Well, we'd miss out on a lot, and Andrew Hacker agrees. Mathematics is one of the greatest creations of the human intellect. It's up there with Shakespeare's plays. It's up there with the best of our poetry and philosophy. It shows what the human intellect can do. I am all in favor of studying, teaching mathematics at every level. You heard the professor. So uh, what's the square root of minus five? Email us if you've got an answer, bigpicturescience.org. We can always count on our production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, thanks to Gabriel Alvarado and Gina Luciano. Also, support from Google and Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Math's Days Are Numbered, and you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're there, you might find and download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you love Maxwell's equations, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. 
What does over-the-air radio have to do with Maxwell's equations? Maxwell's equations, devised during the time of the American Civil War, describe the behavior of light, and radio is just a form of light.